You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to produce this podcast. It has definitely been a passion project for me to share all aspects of this family disease of addiction. Today will be no different. Sadly, like many chronic, progressive, and potentially fatal diseases, there are no guarantees. I am privileged and humbled to introduce you to Danny Morford, a courageous lady who invited all of us into her journey loving three boys with substance use disorders through her book entitled Shoot My Ashes from a Cannon. Tragically, Danny and her family lost one of the boys, Travis, to this no-fault disease. This book is one of the most beautiful compilations of heart, humor, and painful truths. Please meet Danny. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. First of all, do we have a drink of water? Yes. Let's do a little sip of our water. So I am so thrilled, Danny, to have you with me. Um, you know, we met truly by a recommendation of your book being given to me by Sandy Swenson and me grabbing it and reading it. And the book title is Shoot My Ashes from a Canon Beyond Addiction, The Letters. Mm -hmm. And I was touched in so many ways by your writing. And so if we can today, I'd love to just chat with you about your story in general and also what led you to this writing and why you chose letters and some of those interesting behind the scenes conversations about your book. To anyone out there who has been touched by the disease of addiction, um, this book has some beautiful quotes and some heartfelt letters that I know people will connect with no matter where they're on the journey. But Danny, when you look at how disease came into your life, the disease of addiction, Was your exposure to it through your children? Did you have exposure to addiction before your children? Uh, No, I really didn't. You know, I grew up when I heard about addiction or alcoholism, I just pictured someone in the gutter or the street and um, living with it. I've seen the big difference that it could be anybody. It doesn't, you know, Anyone can be susceptible to it. And, and I had no idea that my child could start so early. So when did the disease become a member of the family? At what age in the children? About age 12 with Travis. So maybe we should back up a little. You're married. Yes. And you have three? Three boys. Had three boys. Uh-huh. Do you say had or have? I usually do say have. 
because I always have him. And, you know, if people say different things, then eventually I might say, well, one of them has passed. But, yeah, yeah. But he's a part of your family, always will be. Yes, yes. You have the three boys and addiction came into your life with Travis when he was 12. Is he the only one that has the disease of addiction? No, we ended up where all three of our boys were susceptible to it. And it was about 2000 when we noticed that Caleb and Eric were dealing with stuff. We'd been so caught up with Travis that, you know, we weren't seeing the other signs. So all three of them had times that they all went to treatment and it was very chaotic at our house. And the window of that chaos started with Travis at 12 and went through to what age were, would you say that some of the chaos was lessened? Probably around 2006 when uh, Travis had uh, gone to treatment in uh, Louisiana. And then when he came home, we had a few years where things were really good. But uh, towards the end, he was with a girl that he had met in treatment. And I think that he, well, we know that he was doing very well. He had a job that he was supposed to start as a personal trainer. He had gotten certified and he was supposed to start the job. And um, I saw him right around five o'clock. And so something happened where he was hurt at a pool party. They were at a pool party. And then someone gave him some meds some Xanax, and then it just kind of skyrocketed. From everything that we knew, he was doing well and was trying really hard. We think that he was going to make it this time, and he didn't. So, And I cannot imagine, first of all, three children battling this disease. And we'll talk about how you found your way through that. And then to have one of your children lose their life due to this illness mm-hmm. and coming through that, how you live with that as the new normal of your family structure. Do you think that's why the book came to be? I think so. I think um, I've always journaled and just written. And when I was doing the Christmas letters, I did them yearly because I got tired of the letters that we received that were so, didn't sound normal to me. (laughs) Well, maybe we should stop there and touch on that a little because, you know, one of the things that just caught me immediately when I read your book was that reality of the Christmas letters, right? We all know them. We receive them. And these descriptors of the perfect, quote unquote, families. Yeah. You know, Johnny's doing this, Sally's doing this, here's our pictures, you know, beautiful. And I hope for people they are authentic. Yeah. You chose to do something very different with your Christmas letters. It was a way that I had been going to Al Anon since about 2000. And I continue to still go to Al Anon, not quite like two or three times a week, but I do go. And I felt comfortable in the rooms and I felt like, I could share the letters. And so it got to be a yearly thing where people knew I would have my letter a few days before Christmas. 
and I had permission of the boys and Pete to do it. In fact, they they loved doing it, and um, they didn't love being the stars in it, but they knew, and I think they knew that I was trying to be honest about our family, so it was mainly an Al-Anon, yeah. And so you made the choice to write your Christmas card with truths, examples of the disease's impact on the lives of yourselves, your children. That's what you committed to doing in your letters. That's how it appears to me. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. And, you know, I think in doing that, it's like more people were willing to talk. You know, once you kind of open up, it's like people go, oh, yeah, I had this happen or that happen. And I really wasn't ashamed about it. It's just it was our family. And we have a lot of love and we did the best we could. And the boys used to not like me going to Al-Anon because they thought I would just be talking about them. And they didn't realize, yeah, we might mention them some, but I was working on myself. And eventually they would tell me, you need to go to a meeting. (laughs) Yeah. Or ask me to um, maybe talk to a friend of theirs, mother, that they were having a hard time. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. Danny, that's beautiful. The power of how our recovery impacts those we love. We end up in the rooms to find ways to usually fix them. And then we start healing and working on ourselves. And at first there's uh, in, maybe a threat of, oh, are you talking about me? To, wow, mom, I really would love you to go to a meeting, (laughs) which is what we want for them to do so badly. Mm -hmm. Then would you mind talking to my friend whose mom is struggling? I mean, how beautiful is that message? Well, I learned a lot from my kids. And also by me doing the steps, I understood when they were in treatment or when they were having to do the steps, what it was like. And I know one time Travis asked me, he said, how do you um, relapse? And I said, when I enable. And he was like, okay. And I said, yeah, Travis, we relapse just in a different way. So we were able to have conversations and stuff like that. And it was kind of neat. That's more than kind of neat, Danny. Yeah. (laughs) That's beautiful. To me, that's the epitome of why I encourage so many people to find their own recovery, Mm -hmm. to be able to have a conversation where you come from a similar place, you understand it as a no-fault disease, you realize that it's impacted both of you in very paralleled ways that you can discuss openly without defensiveness and beating each other up. So when these letters went to your Al-Anon friends, did you eventually send them to everybody or from the get-go, they went out to everybody? They went out to everybody. From the get-go. and. I ended up getting a lot of people that just loved them. And I also had friends that used to write those letters. They don't send them to us anymore. They're more honest when they send them, which is nice. I think part of what I'm trying to do is teach people about addiction. So I have to just kind of tell them in the letters. Well, you did that. Not only did you teach them about the collateral damage of the disease. 
that it isn't a straight trajectory. They get well and they move on. Like you, you taught them that, but you also destigmatized it as a mom seeking help for yourself. Because in your letters, you talk about, you know, your own recovery, not only what's going on, the good and the bad and the ugly with the disease, but your own recovery. Yes. Did you consciously do that or it just was the evolution of the letters? You know, I think it's just how I am. You know, when I was doing the letters and then when I finally got to the point where maybe I should work on a book with them, I had the negative thinking like, well, who is going to want to read this? I think it was Travis and just laying it on my heart to go for it. And I think at the age I'm getting, it's the last phase I'm going to be in and I need to get out of my comfort zone. Mm. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And hopefully it will help. When you say who would want to read this, Mm -hmm. the isolation of the disease is one step. That's really hard for many people. The loss of a child to this disease or a spouse or a parent is another level of isolation. There are, sadly, millions of people who need your book. Think about you when you were going through it. To have somebody out there who had experienced this type of loss and would just come beside you and not try to make you feel better or move you through it, but just let you be in your grief and understand that some days it feels incomprehensible, we can't get through it, and other days you'll find yourself laughing and feel almost guilty about it. Yeah, yeah. And I give my group meeting, my parents meeting, Al-Anon, I went there about a week after Travis died, and they're like my second family. And, you know, I could cry there. And used to, when I started going to the Al-Anon, I thought it was weak to cry or to, to show that much emotion. But boy, did I learn it takes a lot of courage to do that. And it's healing. And it's nice to be in a room with people that understand. And I learned so much from other people in the rooms. So I give them credit for allowing me to have my grief and talking with me and being there so many years. And what's more gracious and beautiful about that on the part of your group is what you were experiencing was their biggest fear. Yes. And they still showed up for you and sat with you and loved on you, supported you, despite their biggest fear being what you were living. You're right. In fact, I had um, several of them tell me that when they saw that I was at the meeting that night, that they really wanted to just go and leave the room. And they're glad that they didn't. But, you know, I got that in the grocery store or wherever I could see people. And if they saw me, they would actually turn around and go the other way. And I knew from my Christie meeting, the grief support group from the Susan, the head of it, that that happened to her and she would end up just chasing them down and having them speak to her. I didn't ever do chase them down, but it did allow me from that meeting to know that we are looked at as different. And then it made me wonder, how are my boys coping with it? They won't go to the grief support groups and you just have to hope that they figure it out or they learn 
what Pete and I could share when we went to them. I've done quite a bit of work in grief and loss because it's a passion point of mine. And even I, I'll have to admit, as a professional, when I started looking at the training, there was this irrational fear of, am I inviting this to come into my home? Is this preparatory for what I might experience? Mm -hmm. And thankfully, due to the wise people that I was training with and just the passion I have that this is a subject that is so critical for all of us to have support with, Mm -hmm. whether it be the tragedy of losing a child to your parent passing to your partner. I mean, grief is part of every one of our lives. And I understand that discomfort of someone in the aisle seeing you of fear of what do I say? How do I say it? If I get too close, then I have to look at my own mortality or fears for my children or my person. Like that's a big part of why people move away rather than lean in. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what Susan Cox does with the Christie Center. She has learned over these many years to educate people about grief. And sometimes it's starting with your family. I think people try, they don't realize how important it is to mention your loved one's name that's passed and to talk about them and do memories. And that's our place to try to teach them because grief hasn't always been easy to talk about, but especially with a child. Did you ever feel bitter? that you had to teach people how to be there for you? Or did you feel because you had built in a network of support within the Christie groups and Al-Anon that you were okay because you were getting filled up there to do a little of that work elsewhere? I don't think I felt bitter. You know, I'd say it more like just sad. And I knew from Susan and everything that people didn't know that they might be saying something that was hurtful or they didn't say something at all. And, you know, I don't think anyone does it on purpose. No, I agree. I think it is fueled by one's own limitations of how would I cope. So Travis had found some recovery before you lost him to the disease. Yes. We were able to do two family trips. We went to Disney World. (laughs) We did that when they were really little, and we had more fun at that age when we did it late like that. We had a really good time, and then we went to Europe for three weeks with all three of them, and it was such a blessing that we got to have that time. We had no idea that this would happen, so we we feel very fortunate that we had that. Mm -hmm. Tell the listeners, if you're willing, when you found out what you went through, mm-hmm. and then how you built your support network. I mean, you went to Allen on a week later, so you already had that support network established in your own recovery. What a blessing, right? Yes. But I know you added other things in that have helped you with your grief journey. So are you willing to share that part of the story? Sure. Um, one thing at Travis's at our home after the service, there were so many of their friends that told me they were tired of losing their friends to the disease. And I just said, let me catch my breath and I'll try to do something. So six weeks after Travis died, I did the 
along with, I think, four or five of my friends, we did the disease of addiction and did town hall meetings. And I think the first night it was at Westlake High School where Travis and the boys went. And we had no idea how many people would show up. And there was about 600 people that came. And um, we had a panel of experts about addiction and some different parents that had dealt with it. And then we ended up doing like brown bag lunches at a lot of the schools in Austin. And that went on for a couple of years. And then my main helper, her daughter was graduating and she just couldn't do anymore. So it kind of no more on the disease of addiction, but um, mainly it's a staying and having a passion with trying to end the stigma and shame. And Pete and I have stayed involved with the recovery network here. We're with a sober high school and with Alpha 180 and used to be awesome recovery. And I think that's the biggest part is knowing and having a passion that makes it a little bit like Travis didn't die in vain. And I can honor him like that. So that's kind of where I've come from. I know none of us wants to ever experience our child's loss. Tragically, in this disease, it happens way too often. I am so enormously grateful for Danny's courage to share her story. Come back next week to hear more of Danny's experience, strength, and hope. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.